All right. So today we are going to look at the second part of teaching about um, the gift of prophecy operating in a church. So part one was a while back. It's been a little bit since we did that. So I thought I'd start with a little bit of review. What did we talk about the first time um, we talked about the gift of prophecy? Um, We went over the basic definition of prophecy. Remember, prophecy declares the mind or the message of God in a particular situation. And that was what we called forth telling, telling that forth, the mind or message of God for a particular situation. Or um, it predicts the future according to the spirit. And that's what we called foretelling. So those are uh, the two different categories. And then we went over examples of that just in the narrative. Mainly we were in Acts and specifically the church at Antioch. And through those stories, we saw that the gift of prophecy operates in a lot of different contexts. There were times where it sounded like it was an upfront thing. Like so there was someone up front and they were talking and they were prophesying. There were times when uh, the church would come together to fast and pray. And the gift of prophecy would emerge in that type of setting. And then there were other times where it had more of a personal tone. And we talked about that specifically with Paul. um, And how sometimes prophecy can be challenging and still be something that builds us up. And Paul experienced that um, when he was being told that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to suffer. But still, he was edified and built up by that and he went. So that's what we've done so far. Today, um, we are going to go over some prophecy one-liners. So these are things that are, they're more than one line. They're one to three verses um, that just uh, give us um, a picture of some of the character of the gift of prophecy and what that um, looks like. And uh, I think that's all we'll be able to cover today. And there's lots of these Uh, There's lots of prophecy one-liners in the New Testament. I just gathered a handful, so this isn't by any means exhaustive. I just picked a few to go over today. So the first one that we're going to start with is right here. So Paul says, um, he applies this to testing of all spiritual gifts. So not just the gift of prophecy, but any spiritual gift This is a test to see what spirit is that person operating in. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I inform you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. All right, so here is a baseline test. Let's start by talking about the culture, um, this, the context of culture that he was speaking this into. This is a pagan culture that is engaged in a lot of idol worship. Now, these idols are mute. It's a graven image. It's a statue that someone made. It's, it's nothing. It can't speak on its own. None of these idols themselves can give the power that's present in the operation of spiritual gifts, much less a spiritual gift that involves speaking. But there can and there will be imposters that speak by other spiritual influences. And this is a test 
of what spirit is operating if it looks like there's a spiritual gift happening. So at the time, there were at this time that Christianity is emerging, Jesus has died, he's been resurrection, resurrected, the Holy Spirit has come. And at this time, people were trying to decide what they were going to do with this Jesus person and with this emerging uh, new belief system. And some were totally denying Jesus. Uh, they were saying, look at this guy who made all these claims about being God, and he just died as a criminal. And uh, they would say he is a complete fraud. And these are the people that would say, Jesus, be cursed. And we know, that's fairly obvious, right, that that's not Holy Spirit operating in someone who's saying, Jesus, be cursed. Um, so anything that looks like a spiritual gift operating in that person is fraudulent. Um, that's uh, not authentic. So let's move to the people saying that Jesus is Lord, be an example of having the Holy Spirit. But can't people just say anything? Like, I know people just say stuff all the time. How, <laughs> how do you know that they really mean that? Um, so for people in this time and in this pagan culture to declare Jesus as Lord, it meant um, they said that to the exclusion of all other gods. There was this uh, thing at the time where people recognized that Jesus had power. He, they saw the miracles that he did. They heard his teaching and they were impressed by it. So they thought, well, this guy is something, but I'm just going to incorporate him into my pantheon of gods. And I'm just going to like include him with everything I already worship. So there were people that were doing that. Um, they weren't outright denying him, but at the same time, they couldn't call him Lord. To them, he was. there were many lords, there were many gods, and he was just another deity to add to all of that. So for someone to say Jesus is Lord in this context, it meant they had undergone transformation by Holy Spirit because they were willing to accept the consequences of saying such a thing publicly. Those professing Jesus as Lord in this culture we're talking about here, they had abandoned false gods and they had devoted themselves solely to Jesus. Because the word Lord here has a different connotation. It's, it's not as simple as we often use it. Lord here has connotations of master. It has connotations of authority. And for them to say that someone is their Lord, they're saying, I belong to him. There's a, there's a belonging. He is my master. He has authority over me. I belong to him. And that was how the disciples referred to Jesus while he was there with him. They called him Lord and master. Um, so there's a, a strong connotation to saying Jesus is Lord. And there were steep consequences for making such statements because it meant he is supreme to the exclusion of everything else. He is the only God. So... That really meant something. It wasn't just a flippant thing. There was a recognition of who Jesus is, um, which only comes by the Holy Spirit. There's a similar meaning, a similar thing that's talked about in 1 John. As far as testing goes. A little bit different situation, but we'll look at this too. Uh, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now, it is already in the world. So he's talking about something that's just a slightly different here in terms of doctrine. Um, this is talking about a doctrine that said it was called docetism. And there were people that would say that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh and that he didn't actually die a physical death, um, that that was something else completely. And so John is warning against that. He's saying anyone who denies um, the full humanity of Jesus, then um, that person is not speaking by the Holy Spirit either. So let's talk about our culture today. Our culture is different than this. And um, it almost seems to me a little more complicated because versions of Jesus and Christianity have become incorporated into our popular culture. So um, there's not so many consequences for someone to say Jesus as Lord. They might just print it on a t-shirt and, and just wear it. And um, it's, it's just different now. Um, and to a certain extent, church has become a part of the social fabric of America, the world that we live in, the Western world. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit, still he still gives us discernment. We can still hear from him about really what sort of spirits are operating when we're evaluating these things. And um, we can look at the fruit of the Spirit, and there's still ways that we can see when people are not aligning themselves with the one true God. I mean, that's still very possible for us today. But I just want to explain to you what that baseline test means, because it sounds like, well, anybody can just say anything, and I guess I just have to believe them. But there was more to it than that. So that is the first one. Let's look at the next one, which was a little more specific prophecy. This one was really interesting to me. I think this one was my favorite, um, just because of what I learned from it as I looked into it deeper. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9 through 12. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I thought Oh, I should have read it up here. Sorry, I have a different version. I'm going to start over. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So that's the NIV there. Let's talk about we prophesy in part. Paul compares our current state, the state in which we prophesy, to that of a child. There are things that we don't know, and there are things that we don't understand. We don't understand them yet, and we won't understand them until the age to come. So even as we tell forth the message of God prophetically, it's only partial. It's incomplete, like a child just learning how to communicate. And he goes on to talk about this 
Now we see in a mirror dimly. And seeing in a mirror dimly, a mirror dimly is one word in the Greek. It's this word that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, Other translations say darkly or like a reflection in a mirror. And the word, this Greek word means enigma. It's where we get our English word enigma. Or it can mean like a riddle. Think about a riddle. It can present a truth to you, but it's kind of veiled. It's not immediately obvious right on the surface what that truth is, but it's there. So that's where we get this word. That's where this word comes from. And you have to use the Septuagint to make this connection, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, Because this Greek word in the New Testament is only used here. It's just this one time in our whole New Testament. But if you use the Septuagint to look where this word is used in the Old Testament Greek um, translation, it's used lots of times. And this is kind of a throwback to something that happened with Moses. And it really demonstrates this point of contrast between the way that we see things now, even prophetically, and the way that we will see them in eternity. Going back to Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 6. And you can see I've underlined and highlighted this Greek word. So you can see where it comes up here. Hear my words. This is, this is God talking. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will reveal myself to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. But this is not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So you see that word there, that riddle, and the words face to face. Clearly there's like a, Paul has possibly, in my opinion, he's having a call back to this. He's, he's bringing this forth as he's talking about the contrast between The way that we prophesy now, in part, the way that we understand things incompletely, and the way that we'll understand them in eternity, he's comparing that to the degree of contrast between the way that God revealed himself to some prophets and the way he revealed himself to Moses, (laughs) which was face to face. He said, I didn't speak to him in enigmas and riddles. So in the fullness of eternity, no more enigmas, no more riddles. We're going to see things fully as they completely are in our heavenly experience. And prophesying in part, that doesn't mean that we prophesy in error and we misrepresent God. That's not what it means. It denotes that incompleteness. It's just not a full view. And I think at the heart of meaning for this whole thing... It's a reminder that our primary mode of operation as sojourners here on earth is faith. That even when we receive prophecy, even when we receive revelation, it's often going to be enigmatic and it is incomplete. It's a partial view. And there's no substitute for faith. When you can't walk by sight, you have to have faith. And I find that encouraging that when sometimes things are incomplete and I wish I had more answers, that's normal. (laughs) That's us living here on earth. And we have faith and we have perseverance to see us through. 
We can't walk by sight. We can't always walk by what we know. We go forward by faith. And Paul ends this chapter in 1 Corinthians. By reminding us of three things, right? We have faith, hope, and love. With the greatest being love. Think about how faith and hope support us and our enigmatic existences. Um, Even with our revelation by Holy Spirit, faith carries us because we always encounter uncertainty. That's just part of our lives. And faith carries us when things are uncertain. And hope acts as our anchor. When all we can see with our eyes are storms and waves, hope is what connects us to the truth. It's what connects us to our rest. And so those two things in eternity, those are going to be fulfilled. We won't need to walk by sight or walk by faith because we'll see everything. It'll be revealed to us. We'll have the full view. Our hope will be fulfilled. Um, But love is going to remain for all eternity. And that's why he says that's the greatest because that's the one that never goes away is love. I will always be there. So to wrap that up, prophecy is only partial. It's awesome, and it does all sorts of things, and it's important and essential to the church and the growth, but it's only partial. It's often enigmatic, and we still, we still need faith. We still need perseverance. And um, even when we receive an awesome prophecy that's really clear, and it's just like, man, I know just what to do, um, we're always going to encounter testing. And we're always going to have to um, rely on the Holy Spirit to bring us through that. Our next one is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 through 4. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So this one we've talked about a little bit already, that strengthening, comforting, encouraging. I thought I'd go into a little bit about what does it mean to build. And some translations say to edify. So literally, uh, that word means to erect a building. It just means to build something. Uh, Pretty straightforward. Uh, figuratively speaking, like if you're applying that term to a person, we often translate that as edify. And that means to build up their character, to help someone stand and be sturdy in the character of Jesus, to contribute to the growth of another person so that they can be edified, like the edifice of a building. They're sturdy in the character of Christ. Now, believers are often referred to as buildings, right? Um, we're called the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a type of building. And then collectively, all of us together, the church, are also referred to as the temple. And this is the word that Jesus uses when he says, I will build my church. It's the same word. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when someone operates in the gift of prophecy, they are assisting and building up the character of Christ in another believer. They're assisting in constructing that edifice that presents itself to the world, the character of Christ. Um, They're assisting in building up the temple to the glory of God. 
It's a little more in-depth way to look at it. And what a privilege to be able to exercise the gift of prophecy and to, to build up the temple, which glorifies God. Um, there's a great example of this that I didn't share in the first sermon on prophecy that I wanted to. But in 1 Timothy 1.18, and Paul talks about these prophecies that were made over Timothy in both of his letters to him. He refers to them a few times. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. Paul does a lot of encouraging Timothy to minister, and it sounds like there's a good amount of struggle there. Timothy's young, like he's got some issues, he's encountering discouraging elements. And one of the ways Paul encourages him and says, hey, remember those prophecies that were made about you? Remember when I laid my hands on you? Recall those so that you can fight the good fight. By remembering what came forth via the gift of prophecy, Timothy is edified. He's built up in himself, and that enables him to more so build up the church and to edify those that he is ministering to. So that's a great example of someone being strengthened, comforted, encouraged by the gift of prophecy. Let's move on to the next one. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 through 25. But if an unbeliever or uninstructed person comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convicted and called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart will be made known. So he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is truly among you. So, the gift of prophecy can also bring conviction. That can come from the operation of the gift of prophecy. What does it mean to be called to account by all and the secrets of his heart will be made known? I'll present to you a couple possibilities. Here's the first one. If you remember when we talked about this before, we talked about how um, words of knowledge are so closely related with the gift of prophecy that sometimes it's not, it's hard to even separate them. So the first possibility is that we're talking about a word of knowledge here, like what Jesus had with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He sees her, he tells her, you have five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband. And because of that revelation, she, is, she says, you're a prophet, um, because how else would you have known that but by divine revelation? This could, uh, this could get ugly if people latch on to this and um, use prophecy as an excuse to condemn people by publicly exposing and shaming them. That's not what's happening. Notice what doesn't happen as a result of Jesus' interaction with this woman. She does not go away condemned. Jesus' revelation of her sin doesn't push her away. It draws her to him. He's not creating a me versus you dynamic where somebody gets to feel superior over someone else because they're so vulgar and you're so good. That's not what he's doing. Through this whole interaction, he reveals himself to her. And she ends up doing exactly what this 1 Corinthians 14 verse is saying. She essentially declares God is among you when she goes back to her city 
and tells all of the people about Jesus and brings them out to him. That's the result of what he does here. He exemplifies perfectly the epitome of humility and love in this story. Um, He is the only one who could cast a stone at this woman legally. He's it, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. So we certainly have no business using a gift of prophecy to cast stones at other people and to shame them or do anything like that. God help us if we behave so poorly that we do that to someone else. That's not right. So the second possibility um, of what is happening here, and this is the one I think best fits the context. The second possibility is that this unbeliever is being convicted in his own heart. His depravity is being revealed to him, and he becomes convicted of the truth. To say that he's a called, he's called by, he's called to account by all. Um, that's in the sense that people are prophesying one by one, and all of the truth that's being spoken uh, by all those different people is having an effect on his conscience. The spirit is working to reveal personal truth to him. He knows that even though the things that are being said are not being said directly to him, like you are doing this or you this or that, that's not what's happening. Uh, They're not being spoken directly to him, but he is convinced of his guilt in the sight of God by the Holy Spirit as he sits in the presence of people prophetically revealing the mind and message of God in that particular situation. The secrets of his heart are made known to him. The things that he previously thought nothing of, like this is just how I live my life. All of those things are revealed to him for what they are. And he's convicted by that. And the effect of that revelation is that he turns to God. He glorifies God. And those people that are prophesying, they may not even know that that is happening inside of him in that moment until they see the fruit of it, until he tells them about it. So people can experience this in many different contexts. I mean, you could be listening to a sermon. You could just be in a casual conversation with another believer where they say something that just cuts directly to the heart. And Holy Spirit just tells you in that moment, like, this is, this is something between me and you. And that person doesn't even know <laughs> that they said anything and they didn't intend that. And many, I know I've had this experience. I know I've had other people approach me and tell me about this experience that they've had where they're hearing a sermon that it wasn't written to them, but it spoke directly to them via Holy Spirit. And this is what we pray for. You know, that's what we pray for. A lot of times before we start a service, we say, Holy Spirit, open up our ears to hear what you have to say to us. Make this a message that speaks directly to what we need. Those are the things we pray for. So within this context here in 1 Corinthians 14, it looks like they're in um, like a corporate meeting. There's different people talking. So it seems most likely that this is the interpretation of what's happening here, is that this person is hearing all of these things and this is taking place inside of them. And that's a really common experience. And often the way 
that Holy Spirit works among us. So that's kind of what I think um, this is referring to. One more, I think. Still in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 32. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn, and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophets' spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So the main gist of these verses is that the gift of prophecy is exercised in an orderly manner, and that the goal of that is that everyone may learn and may be encouraged. That's the mission when it comes to the gift of prophecy, that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. It's not a situation where somebody's revelation from God is so big that it has to interrupt everything and have no regard for what else may be planned for that service or anything anyone else has to offer. That's not what's happening. And as a matter of fact, I mean, to me, I, I see that if you, if you have anything to share, be it a prophetic word or whatever, and you can't conform to the established order of service, no matter what you say, that's a red flag to me. Because that's just a basic character thing. You know, we, can we have regard for other people? Can we have regard for what else is planned for the day? Um, I, I think that's well within the prophet's ability to do that. So they were to prophesy one by one and not talk over each other because the prophet's, prophet's spirit is subject to the prophet. In other words, he or she is in control of his or her faculties. They can stop talking and they can wait to talk. It, it's not this erratic eruption of speech that just takes over and disregards everything else. It's within order. Um, an interesting like we've had a lot of conversations about on pastoral team about how to handle like different things like this. And, you know, how do you love people? How do you um, not quench the Holy spirit? How do you not shut things down? And also how do you care for the people that are here and make sure you're protecting things and not just being willy nilly. Um, we know another church that's a part of our organization in harvest Alliance and, um, Something interesting that they've come up with, I don't know if it's from these verses, but um, when someone has a prophetic word, they come up and they just sit and they wait. And they see if maybe one or two other people will hear something that's along the same lines. We'll get something that is similar to what that person got. And once they get that, that's kind of a confirmation. And then they allow those people to share and I thought, well, that's something I've never thought of before. That's, I kind of like that idea. So that's kind of how uh, they do that. Humility and loving service are essential for the gift of prophecy to operate. Is because you have to subject yourself to yourself. You, you have to have self-control. 
And Paul is talking about, there's this place in Romans where he's talking about the body of believers operating in spiritual gifts and how all of those gifts come from one spirit. They may be different, but they all come from one place. And it's within the context of that conversation that he tells them, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. (laughs) It's not just you doing your God thing. It's us doing the God thing. And it all comes from one place. And uh, we we all have things to offer. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Also, a tough thing about this is your prophesying will and should be tested by others. And to submit to that requires humility. How do we handle that? How do we handle that? What if people decide what we brought forward doesn't pass the test? What do we do? Well, ideally and hopefully, and I say this about myself too, I hope that I would listen. (laughs) That I would listen that I would avoid offense, and I would consider what my brother and brothers and sisters have to say. Ideally, what we don't do is take it as an attack on our identity. Like, oh, well, if I, if I didn't hear something 100% correct, what does that say about me and my relationship with Jesus? And have like a complete freak-out breakdown moment. Um, ideally, we don't become condemned. Um, we don't get into wondering, like, well, what do I even know? Am I even saved? All kinds of crazy things. It can totally spiral out of control. That's what we don't want to do. Um, our righteousness, our salvation, that's secure in Christ. We are in him. He has provided that. You are in him. And from that place of security, ideally what we do is we consider that reproof and we learn. And we go on. And, and that's... That's just the way it is. It's not the end of the world. We're secure in him. We consider what's being said. We learn and we go forward. And that's okay. Let's talk about how is the evaluating being done. So in this context, um, it doesn't sound like what Paul is talking about is a foretelling event. Because he's saying they're going to prophesy and you're going to evaluate. So they're not waiting to see if a future predicted event happens. They're doing it on the spot. So this is probably more like a forth telling, like um, bringing forth the mind or message of God in a particular situation. So how are they evaluating that? First of all, they're using discernment um, via the Holy Spirit. And they also have the body of knowledge um, that came from the Old Testament They have the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, all of those things they had at the time. They can listen to these things and um, look at, does this sync up with the body of teaching of the Old Testament, Jesus and the apostles, and what is being discerned, which is also a spiritual gift, gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's how they're evaluating to see if this prophetic utterance should be approved. So evaluating prophecy is echoed in some other parts of Scripture as well. We touched on this already in 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So this is just something that we do as believers. We test the spirits. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
he says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test all things and hold fast to what is good. Um, Sometimes it says, do not despise prophecy. It means um, to not hold something in contempt. If you're holding something in contempt, it's like you don't value it. You're just like, meh, whatever. And I think sometimes I know that I'm vulnerable to those types of attitudes sometimes. If I see something abused or misused in a way to where it hurts people, my inclination is to just, I don't even want to deal with that because people just use it and abuse it. And so I have to watch myself. I don't want to have contempt for any kind of spiritual gifts because maybe sometimes people misuse them and use them to abuse other people. Um, we can't. We can't have that attitude of contempt. And we have to evaluate because we got to hold on to what is good, right? Because it has to serve its purpose, which is to build us up. We want to evaluate. This is good. I'm going to hang on to it because it's going to build me up. So that's important. And so far, we've talked about the responsibility of evaluation kind of going toward the person who's giving the prophecy. Like they're bearing all that weight of the scariness. But I think it goes back the other way. Um, The responsibility for evaluation doesn't just um, all go the way of the person giving it. Those that are testing and that are listening, they also bear responsibility. Like, you're, you're supposed to be doing that. And I feel like that's just as weighty as it is to get up and give something like that, to share something prophetically. Um, those evaluating have a job, too. Um, they also have to be operating in the Spirit. They have to have humility. We have to be humble when we're evaluating prophecy. We have to be operating in love. We have to have patience. Um, When we're evaluating something, it's our job to not be critical, coming with a critical spirit, to not be cynical, (laughs) um, to not be treating that with contempt, um, and to not be condemning um, in the way that we evaluate things. So that's a two-way street. It's really important for us to have the right attitude when we're listening to people bring um, things prophetically. Those are the five, four or five uh, one-liners that I wanted to bring to you today. Um, I'm going to talk on this more because it seems like the more I look at it, there's just always more things that come up about it that I didn't think about before. So next time, um, I might end it, um, but next time I'm going to talk about what prophecy is not. And we're going to do that by looking at what is the characteristics of false prophets. What What is that experience like? We'll take a look at the counterfeit so that we know what prophecy is not. And then we'll finish up by talking about the constant context of the body and love and humility in relation to all the spiritual gifts. So that will be next time, which won't be next Sunday, but the next time I talk. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you empower us to build each other up and to glorify you, to participate in the kingdom in spite of the fact that we are so obviously not perfect. (laughs) I pray, Lord, that you would help us to always minister to each other in humility and in love. Help us to always 
have our motivation be to build up others, to glorify you. I pray that you would just give us a sensitivity to your voice. You would help us to never forget character. Always bring to mind the way that you conducted yourself with all people and how you loved. How you weren't self-seeking. Help us to minister and to live our lives in the same way, Lord. And I just pray that you would move mightily among us in all spiritual gifts, Lord. That you would wake us up to all those things and that we would trust you and move forward in them, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.